0: All right, guys, let's uh, let's find our way back to our seats, if you please. And while you look to find your seats, um, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you this morning to look at your word. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I just pray this morning, God, would you, by your Spirit, cause us to behold your glory through your word, which causes a real change in us from one degree of glory to the next. We're dependent on you as we look to you. So we just ask in Jesus' name, would you please do this among us? Amen. All right, church family, we are going to be continuing our study on the church today. If you've been with us the last two Sundays, uh, Jason began our sermon series on what is the church. And one of the things that we saw from God's word is that as Christians we've been born into God's family first in the zoomed out big sense of the word every Christian in the world when they are born again they are adopted into a new family they have a new heavenly father and they are now brothers and sisters with every other believer in history around the world And then we also saw that we aren't just part of God's family in a big sense, but we are also purposed and called to be part of a local expression of that church family. This morning, we're going to look again at God's word and try to answer this. If God means for us to actively be a part of a local expression of God's family, what does that look like? What does that all entail? And we could talk at length about this, uh, but I'm gonna try to emphasize three points of what a local church family looks like. Now, even when I use that word family, my hunch is that every last one of us had a different experience of family growing up. We also probably in this room have a myriad of cultural differences um, on how that influence how we look at our earthly families, how they should operate, different cultural rules and individual family priorities that shape our definition of what a family should be and what it should look like. For example, I bet some of you in this room have families where the expectation is that you communicate with your family of origin, uh, the ones that don't live with you in your house right now, that you should communicate them on a daily basis, Still, we have some of us in the room that the expectation is it's probably more on a weekly basis, and still some, the expectation is maybe more monthly, and still some, it's maybe a few times throughout the year. And I bet some of us probably have some family members that we haven't talked to for longer than that for various reasons. Now, communication is just one tiny aspect about uh, about how you can have different expectations in family different definitions. Now, this is not a sermon on how our earthly families should operate and what they should look like. And please hear, even with me talking about communication there, I'm not saying one way is better than the other. But I bring that up because as we look at how Jesus spoke about family in the Bible, Jesus wasn't referencing our definitions and expectations of family. He was referencing first century Israel's definitions and expectations. Jason referenced a book as uh, that we read as elders a while back called When the Church Was a Family. And in it the author Hellerman noted three main aspects of first century culture that had implications on how they understood family. So one, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. Two, in the New Testament world, a person's most important group was blood family. And then three, in the New Testament world, the closest family bond was not that of your spouse, but that of your brother or sister. Let's consider those for a moment. So first, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. The New Testament world operated out of a strong group mentality. It meant that the decisions that they made in life all revolved around what was best for the group, not the individual. Western cultures today, on the other hand, tend to hold very individualistic values. We may value groups, but ultimately we base our life's decisions on what's best for me individually. My life decisions ultimately revolve around me, where I live, what I do for work, how I spend my time. A good example would be all of those Disney movies where the prince is being forced to marry the princess that he doesn't love, because that's what's best for the kingdom. But the Disney prince refuses. Of course, he ought to marry for love, even if it's no advantage to the kingdom. So the Western mind thinks obvious. But the New Testament world would have thought, of course the prince should marry the princess, even if he doesn't love her. I mean, doesn't he care about the kingdom? About his family? How selfish of him. Group priority over individual priority. And then second, of those groups that held priority over the individual, blood family was the most important group. It was expected that where you chose to live and what you did for your career and what you did with your time and money revolved around what was best for your blood family. It was expected that you would willingly sacrifice other priorities in your life for the sake of blood family. And then third, there was no more important family relationship than between your brothers and sisters. Sibling relationship took precedent over everything, including your spouse. Your spouse was important, but they weren't blood. And nothing should take precedence over blood, family. Now with that lens of our New Testament world, let's look at our text. So that's Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So Jesus here is calling the 12 apostles to come join his new group so that they might be with him together to expand the kingdom. It's a group not based on blood or genealogy of any kind, but those whom Jesus desired and called, just like the church today. Then after listing the 12 apostles whom Jesus called, Mark says in verse 20, then he, Jesus, went home. And the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now note, Mark says Jesus went home. And that meant his, his base of ministry in Capernaum, uh, not his blood family's home in Nazareth, which means he's already living contrary to his culture's family expectations. And when Jesus' family hears that Jesus has taken this uh, kingdom of God, Messiah, ministry thing, like way too far. Like he's so wrapped up in ministry that he can't even eat. They said to themselves, Jesus has lost it. He's lost his mind, they say. And so they came to seize him. Probably to bring him with them back home back to his blood family where they could talk some sense into him. Now jump down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Again, the crowd being like, hey, your, your blood family's here. The people that you should be prioritizing are calling for you. What are you going to do? Verse 33, And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, the apostles, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Feel that first century shock value. Devotion to blood family over everything. Here's my family. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' words are radical because of how high of value blood family was. See, Jesus is saying the kingdom that he's ushering in The church that he is building is true family. Jesus says, I came so that I could adopt you into true family, the family of God, the church. And that meant real implications for what Jesus meant for the disciples and for the church. The culture, this culture, would have understood that when Jesus referred to family here, he means that same devoted first Priority, life centered around kind of love for their earthly brothers and sisters. And that's the kind of family devotion Jesus was now calling the disciples to and the church that followed. Not just to consider one another as family and how we refer to each other, but to actually live out our lives together as family like the New Testament world understood it. And for the New Testament world, that meant they needed to replace their complete devotion to blood family to devotion to God's family. The two families were in conflict to each other, just like we saw with Jesus' family. Because each one required first priority devotion, but their goals were different. Their values were different. Their entire purposes were different. So you couldn't be completely devoted to both blood family devotion had become an idol of the New Testament world, keeping them from finding life with Jesus. And that's why Jesus said some some pretty harsh-sounding things, like when he told the man to come follow him, but the man replied, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Yes, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I have a family funeral to plan, and nothing takes priority over blood family, right? Right? And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. Jesus demands to be first priority over everything in our lives, but but this is more than just heart priority. The understanding here was that you couldn't have it both ways as they understood it. To believe in Jesus but still have blood family be the true family that you were devoted to above all else. Because believing in and following Jesus meant devotion to his new family. And some family would believe and others wouldn't. Israel's blood family devotion was understandable. As we've seen in our study of Genesis, God's covenant with Israel was wrapped up in blood family, wasn't it? It was the descendants of Abraham that would inherit the promise. But see, it was never about blood family, but faith in God. And all of it was meant to lead us to Jesus. And as Jesus fulfilled that bloodline, he ushered in something new. Jesus came and through his life, death, and resurrection to establish and restore his true family like it was meant to be. A family based on belief in Jesus by his blood. Devoted to God and to one another as brothers and sisters. The disciples imaged this with Jesus, didn't they? Jesus called the twelve into God's family as his brothers. And they were all devoted to the Father together by following Jesus. And they were devoted to one another by following him together in everyday life. And that didn't end when Jesus ascended. But this is exactly how we see the early church living this out. Turn with me in your Bibles, uh, please, to Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. And I want us to look at this. Jason briefly looked at this last week. We're going to look at it again, verse 42. And they devoted themselves praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that same family value system that the New Testament world had, devoted, of first importance, sharing of life together, priority over yourself and other groups kind of love, is now lived out as God's people together in community. And not devoted to any old thing, but devoted to living for Jesus like Jesus had taught them. Look at those four things that they were devoted to. First, to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to learning about God and his kingdom through the leaders that Jesus appointed. This was probably the apostles teaching them all the things that Jesus had taught them. And then them applying it to the scriptures and their lives. Which is just what we're doing right now as we sit underneath God's word together. Second, the fellowship. That's the Greek word koinonia. It meant participation in and sharing. As it says in verse 44, they were together and had all things in common. So participation in life with one another and sharing of their resources with one another. Sharing money, sharing property and belongings. Remember that strong group mentality of the New Testament world, a willingness and expectation to put the group's needs above your own. And that's the kind of koinonia we see played out here. We don't often think of this as a resource, but Do you know what is probably the most valuable resource we have? Time. It's a very limited resource that we hold incredibly dear, often with knuckles white. This New Testament church family sacrificed their time to the group above their own. Not just on Sunday mornings, but day by day they were doing these things together sharing their life's resources and lives with one another day by day. Third, breaking bread. So this probably both uh, meant both celebrating the Lord's Supper and just eating food together. They spent time regularly eating together in each other's homes and remembering through the Lord's Supper what the covenant of this new family was based on. Not natural blood family, but the blood of Jesus. That Jesus died for their sins and rose to new life, that they could have new life in him and with each other. And then fourth, the prayers. See, Jesus was no longer with them in the flesh to empower this new family. So they were devoted to the promise Jesus gave them. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, this I will do. And so we see throughout Acts, the early church was a church that was seriously devoted to praying together with one heart for God's kingdom to come. And when they did, God acted in power. Devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's the New Testament world's family devotion lived out with kingdom of God values and purposes. The family of God lived out as the local church. So we aren't just family in name. The local church is meant to live out this identity as God's family in the everyday realities of life. Devoted vertically to Jesus and horizontally to one another. You guys with me so far? So I hope you're seeing with me that if people treat church like it's just a thing that we attend on Sunday morning, It's a hollowed out distortion of what God means for his church family to look like, isn't it? Church isn't a thing we go to. It's a family that we belong to. And that spiritual family isn't just a visit each other on the holidays kind of family. It's a devoted to God and each other, first priority, all in spiritual family. So point number one for what a local church family looks like, it's a family that's devoted vertically to Jesus and horizontally to one another in all of life. That's what the local church family looks like, and now I want to dig in a bit on the inner workings. What makes this vertical and horizontal devotion possible? Is this devotion fueled by family guilt, like perhaps uh, yours was, or a sense of duty? What is the fuel that made this early church live like this? And then what makes that possible for us? A couple chapters later in Acts, it says this, Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Luke says here they were of one heart and one soul. There was no division, but down to the very heart and soul, they were one. If we look back at our first text in Mark, I skipped over a pretty big chunk there uh, that Parag read where Jesus addresses his opponents who were claiming that he was performing miracles by demonic powers. Jesus' answer to them was, well, that would mean I'm using Satan's power to tear down Satan's kingdom. That makes no sense. Because, as he said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Now, Jesus doesn't waste any of his words. While he says this about Satan's kingdom, Mark places it right in the middle of his comments about true kingdom family. Where the same principle applies. God's kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. God's family would need to be one heart and one soul to stand. Where does one heart and one soul level unity come from? We had our first service over and over and over the other Saturday, and we looked at a text out of John 13. And this text happened right after Judas left to go betray Jesus and the disciples. And immediately, Jesus says, now the time has come where I need to go to the cross and then leave to go to the Father. And immediately, Jesus, I'm sorry, and and he says in verse 33 of chapter 13, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. The time has come where the followers of Jesus can no longer follow a physical Jesus. His first commandment to these men was, come and follow me. And now he says, you can't come and follow me. But then he gives them a new commandment. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also ought to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Well, to love one another is no new commandment, is it? It's pretty old. But at the same time, it is completely new. For precisely the same reason that we've been talking about. Jesus was ushered in a new age. The age of God's church family. This commandment for the church to love one another is new in the sense of how newly important and central God is making it in his mission to the world. God's plan is to bless the world through his family, lived out in local churches. The triune God and his family are motivated and empowered by God's love. It's new because of how newly important our love for one another is in God's plan to bless the world through his devoted church family. The second reason it's new is because of how Jesus says they are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. Love one another as I've loved you is not about imitation here, it's not about copying Jesus. It's not imitation, but participation. The point Jesus makes in the chapters to follow in John is that there's no imitation without participation in Jesus. It's the love of Jesus abiding in us through his spirit that produces a love for one another. So Jesus is leaving in this text, but he isn't leaving his family to do anything on their own. He promises them in chapter 14 that he's going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to abide in them, and he's going to help them with everything. And then in chapter 15, he tells them just where this fruit of love is going to come from. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in them, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the key to how the New Testament church is going to function in anything. But the key context that he says this about is our love for one another. He concludes this conversation about the vine and the branches like this. Chapter 15, 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The kind of brotherly love for each other that Jesus is calling his church family to can only be produced in us by Jesus. God produces in us a supernaturally deep love for one another through the spirit of Jesus as we abide in Jesus. How are we to attain this image of God's family together? One where we're devoted vertically to Jesus and horizontally to one another in everyday realities of life? God supernaturally produces a love in us that compels us into being a devoted family together. We are devoted to the things that we love, right? I've mentioned this example before, but when I was a kid, I was, I was devoted to video games. Particularly every Zelda game. Man, I willingly sacrificed time and sleep and really any other priority. Why? Why? Because I loved it. Oh, I love Zelda. Listen, without a God produced, earnestly deep love for God and one another, the church cannot live out this family reality together. We just can't. It's too hard, it's too countercultural. It is only by the love of Jesus, increasingly producing in us a love for God and for one another as brothers and sisters, that propels us to actually live this out. This is no video game kind of love, nor is it even a New Testament family kind of love. This is the love of God. It's the same love that we see played out in the gospel. It's the very same love that led Jesus to humble himself by becoming a man, being willing to be misunderstood and belittled for our sake. It's the same love that led Jesus to willingly sacrifice his time and energies and priorities and indeed his very life in order to see people come into his family. It's the very same love that causes Jesus to love us while we are yet sinners to see us in all of our messy brokenness and still choose to forgive us and love us and make himself one with us. It's the brotherly love of Jesus that empathizes with us and prays with us and weeps with us and encourages us. And that's the very same love that God now puts in us through his spirit in order to love one another as brothers and sisters. That's what empowers a devoted church family. Listen to how Jesus prays to the Father for his church family in John 17. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. One. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Perfectly one. Filled with the love of God. Just like the triune God is perfectly one and filled with the love of God. So what does this church family look like? It's, it's a family devoted vertically to Jesus and horizontally to one another which too is empowered by the love of God that Jesus supernaturally produces in us by his spirit. And lastly, to what end? We saw what the church is devoted to and how it's empowered, but, but what's the goal? Well, Jesus gives us the purpose and mission of the church at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Put simply, the purpose of our church family is to glorify God by making disciples of each other and the world. When Jesus says make disciples, he he doesn't just mean make conversions. He said, make disciples teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. To be a disciple of Jesus means to increasingly submit to Jesus in all of life, being changed by him, obeying him, and teaching others to do the same. Let me say that again. To be a disciple of Jesus means to increasingly submit to Jesus in all of life, being changed by him, obeying him, and teaching others to do the same. If you're a Christian in this room, the reason that you are still breathing right now and and you were not instantly caught up with Christ the moment you believed is because Jesus is making you into an increasingly mature disciple who makes disciples. That's not the mission of pastors. It's the mission of every single Christian in God's family. And that means in all that we do as a church family together, our aim and our purpose for each one of us is to glorify God by making disciples of each other and the world. So we aren't just individual Christians that see each other on Sundays while we wait for Jesus to return, we're a family. One that's devoted to each other for the purpose of loving each other into full maturity of Christ. I need to be discipled by you, my brothers and sisters in this church. I need that. And you need to be discipled by each other into full maturity in Christ. That's what this family's aiming for. As Paul said to the Colossians Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. That mission then extends out into the world, which we'll talk more at length about in a couple weeks. But to wrap up that third point, the purpose of our church family is to glorify God by making increasingly mature disciples of each other And the world. So, what does our church family look like? Let me try to put it into one super long sentence. God's local church family is a spiritual family devoted to Jesus and to one another in all of life, out of a Holy Spirit produced love of God and one another, in order to glorify God by making disciples of each other in the world. Or more simply, We're a disciple-making, devoted family of God by the love of Jesus. Now, as we look to wrap up, I want us to consider what does this mean for Galway City Baptist Church? Does our church family line up with that description? I want to encourage you that, yes, there are lots of ways that we line up with that. We're already living this out together. But I also want to challenge us are there some ways God is convicting us to grow in living this out? In light of what we looked at, how might God be calling us as a church family to grow in each one of those three points? Let's start with our purpose of making disciples and and move backwards, all right? So number one, are you currently seeking to make disciples of your brothers and sisters in this church? Are you concerning yourself with the spiritual well being of your brothers and sisters here, as the Spirit directs you with all the patience and grace for each other? Are you committed to intentionally love one another with the purpose of seeing them grow and mature in their relationship with Jesus from one degree of glory to the next? And are you opening yourself up in this church family? so that you can be discipled into maturity in Jesus. If not, I want to challenge you today to ask God to help you start. Man, there's lots of ways that we disciple each other into maturity, but perhaps the simplest that I would suggest to start with is simply to study God's word with somebody in the church. God's people are devoted to God's word, like we saw in Acts. His living and active word is what speaks into our discipleship. And when we devote ourselves to looking at God's word with humble, moldable hearts with other people, the Spirit will disciple us. So is there someone or a group of people that you could commit to reading God's word together or talking about God's word together regularly for your own maturity in Jesus and for someone else's? Number two, We can grow as a church family in our love for one another. We have love for one another in this church. Thank God. But good news, God wants to and can increase it. He can and will grow it in us if we ask for it. Jesus himself prayed for it in John 17, like we read. The Apostle John says that God's love is perfected in us as we love one another. And Paul prayed to the church in Thessalonica, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. Don't put a cap on your love for people because of your limitations. It's the infinite love of Jesus that he powerfully works in us, not our own. And only He can produce it in us. So, out of a place of need, let's ask God to increase it. Number three What are some ways that God might be calling us to grow towards that New Testament world first priority devoted sense of family? Do you have a group first priority when it comes to church family? Or does your individual priorities win over most often? Are your decisions in life shaped around what's best for your church family, brothers and sisters? Or is it only your own needs? Specifically, I'd ask, how can we grow in the early churches day-by-day devoted sense of sharing your life kind of fellowship? Consider how the Apostle John talked of that same koinonia word, in 1 John 1.6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So true fellowship with one another can only happen when we walk in the light with each other. We need to be fully known by each other to have true fellowship in our church family. Because of the gospel, God's church family is a family where we can be fully known and still be fully loved because of what Christ has done. The challenge is, is there someone or a group of people that you can share that precious resource of time with to regularly know and be known by people in this church family? This is really where disciple making happens in the family of God. We can't do this in a deep way with everybody in the church because it's just too big, right? Jesus had his 12 that he shared his life with and they shared theirs. Regular, authentic, long-lasting fellowship. And by long-lasting, I mean the longer that you're fully known and know people, the deeper that discipleship will go. We don't really change when we run away when things get tough, do we? We kind of keep, keep on in the same habits. But it's as we work through difficult conflict and have true fellowship for the long haul that God will change us from one degree of glory to the next. And I want to suggest one way for us to live this out better. In fact, it's a way for us to live all three of these out better is through a commitment to a small group. If you're hearing small group, like, what? We don't have those. You're right. We haven't officially had small groups or home groups as a church for quite a while. But we've been discussing it more as elders, and I want to make an official push for it today. In my opinion, walking through life with a small group of your church family is the best context to be a disciple-making, devoted family. We don't have definitions or structures as a church yet on what our small groups uh, will all entail. But generally by small group, I just mean a group of people in the church, say three or four families, that you're committing to regularly walk out life with. To make disciples of each other by fellowshipping, studying God's word, working out the love of God in a way that we can't do as a whole church together. Now some of you, you are already doing this. In certain relationships, that's awesome. When we make it a bit more official, one of the benefits is is that, um, uh, sorry, I almost lost my spot. We can be more intentional in it, and we can provide a better way for everybody to um, to be a part, have a clear opportunity to walk through this together. Because we don't have uh, uh, small groups officially in place right now, so like here's what we need, right? Um, we need people that are interested in being a part of them. It's important. And then we need potential leaders to lead those. And so what I've done as a first step is I've just put out some sign-up sheets on the side table over there. And if God is putting this on your heart at all, like eh, I think that might be something I'm interested in or that God's calling me towards, put your name down. And then in the box next to it, if you're like, I might potentially be open to leading a small group, tick the box next to that as well. And what we'll do uh, is we'll leave those out for the rest of our church series. And then we'll start to have discussions about how those can kind of look. Okay. So small groups or not, God is calling this church to be a disciple-making devoted family of God by the love of Jesus. Groups are an ideal trellis for that love to grow on, but that's our call regardless. Here's the good news, church. If you're in Christ this morning, you are a son or daughter in God's family forever. That's your identity, already and secured. Jesus just wants us to grow in living that reality out to experience that family more fully. If you're not a believer yet this morning, let me just encourage you, Jesus is inviting you to be adopted into this family. No matter who you are or what you have done, Jesus paid the full cost for your adoption. That if you repent of your sins and entrust yourself to him for the forgiveness of your sins, You can be reborn into God's very family, where he calls you a son or a daughter. That's on your heart at all today. Don't put it off. Please come and chat with one of us up front. All right, family, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word is truth. that uh, That it points to reality. The reality is that you have called us into your family. God, we don't, we don't deserve it at all. God, thank you. Thank you that we are sons and daughters. and We are brothers and sisters. God, would you help us just to experience that a little bit more as we go forward? Produce in us a love for each other that overflows into real action. God, glorify yourself among our midst as you help us to make disciples of each other. And God, we thank you that you are the ultimate disciple maker, that it's all in your hands. So we praise you this morning and we thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do in and through us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.